I am black. I am a black man. I am a black American. And being black in America means that at some point in your life, if not for some, the majority of your life, you will have an identity crisis. What it means is that there are going to be times that by others' definition, either you aren't really black, you aren't black enough, or you're too black. That by some's definition, you must meet a certain criteria to be truly black, and by some, it's a different criteria to be truly black. And because of this, being black in America is confusing and stressful. It, it wasn't too long ago that I realized that my identity wasn't being a black man. That my identity, above all things, first and foremost, mainly is I am a child of God. I am loved by the Redeemer, by the Savior, by the Lord of all lords. Now, the Lord has, in his infinite wisdom, made me a black American. But that is a description and not my identity. My identity is found in Christ alone. Pastor Alex has already read the scripture, so let's pray. Father, if you don't hold me, I can't stand. And if you don't speak, words won't come out. Be with me now as I do something I've never done before. As I preach in an environment to an audience that I've never preached before. And guide my words and my thoughts and my actions because this is life. <laughs> and I want to represent you well. So be with me now. Open our ears and our hearts and our eyes. In Christ's name, amen. Gardner C. Taylor and James Earl Massey respectively uh, define and describe preaching as the sweet torture of Sunday morning and a burdensome joy. And it is because of that that I solicit your prayers and your friendship during this time. Uh, I want to always thank Pastor Alex. Um, I'm glad he's back from his vacation. It's not only well-deserved, but above all, well-needed. Uh, and, and the Village Church for being family here and for allowing me this opportunity. Uh, no doubt my family and friends back in Ludlow, Mississippi, and Mount Zion and, and the city or the town are watching. And I thank you all for your support. And my dear pastor friend, Pastor Wingo uh, and Good Hope in Florence, thank you all. 
Uh, it is a joy to be able to preach. I, I try not to preach often uh, as a means of not uh, losing too much time with my family, but Pastor Alex, I've told him, I've told the pastor at, uh, at Mount Zion, Pastor Stingley, as well as Pastor Wingo in Florence, that those three churches I will preach. Uh, part of the reason is because my ministry is full at Birmingham Theological Seminary and Huntsville Bible College being an adjunct professor as well as full-time ministry with Lincoln Village Ministry. And so um, with all that being said, I'm quite busy and with family in Ludlow and in Huntsville and above all my sweet wife, Dolores, who will be celebrating our fifth year, August 1st, and our uh, son, Shalom, who uh, turned three right as soon as the pandemic happened. So uh, he's been getting all of his energy out through me. And so with all that being said, I'm glad, I'm glad to be here this morning, and I'm excited to share God's word. It's an honor and privilege amongst many other things. In season three, episode 21 of the TV show, The Office, uh, Jim Halpert comes in dressed like co-worker Dwight Schrute. Uh, Jim sits down, looks at Dwight, and says, question. What kind of bear is best? Dwight responds, that's a ridiculous question, in which Jim cuts him off and says, false, black bear. Dwight says, well, that's debatable. There are, there are basically two schools of thought. Jim again interrupts him and says, fact, bears eat beets. Bears, beets, Battlestar Galactica. Now, Dwight still doesn't know what's going on as Jim is copying him and imitating him. So Dwight begins to say, well, actually, bears do not. And then he said, hey, what is going on? What are you doing? Dwight thinks a little bit and says, you know what? Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. So I thank you. It is at this point that Jim begins to set his desk up like Dwight. And Dwight loses it and yells, identity theft is not a joke, Jim. Millions of families suffer every year. And they both storm out. According to Identity Force website, in 2019, 14.4 million consumers became victims of identity fraud. That's about 1 in 15 people. According to one statistic, there is a new victim of identity theft every two seconds. Uh, this country has spent millions close to, if not billions of dollars, to protect Americans and consumers from identity theft. The reason is because our identity is extremely important. Knowing who you are is so important. And so when someone steals your identity, you feel a, a, a vulnerable attack has been done to you, and you are placed in a position of fear and anger. I would like to propose to you all that there is a greater identity risk than that of your identity being stolen. And that is 
your identity being lost. The Oxford Dictionary defines identity crisis as a period of uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity becomes insecure, typically due to change in their expected aims or role in society. When we look at Jesus in his life and ministry, we see someone who fully knows who he is and fully knows what his purpose is despite what others try to convince him of. In our text here in John 18, the, the, the context is that if you start back in John 13, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He has indulged with them with the last supper. And he has given them some final lessons that are extremely important for all believers. And the chapter before he ends with what some call the high priestly prayer and others rightly call the true Lord's prayer. And it is with the ending of these prayers and these lessons that we find Jesus in chapter 18, verse 1, in a garden. And we know from the other gospel accounts, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting when we look at Jesus here in this garden that we know the purpose for why he's here. We know what is about to take place. And it is fitting that the first Adam, our issue started in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And the last Adam, or as Paul calls him, the second Adam, the one who is going to correct the mistakes of the first Adam, is here in a garden beginning that process. No doubt the process began when he was born from the foundations of the world. So Jesus and his disciples are in this garden, and verse 2 tells us that Judas, the one who betrayed him, this is how we describe him for a few reasons. One, he betrayed him. But secondly, there was another Judas uh, disciple in the, in the group, and Judas, the one who betrayed him, knew where Jesus was be, would be. Why? Because verse 2 tells us, because Jesus often went there with his disciples to get away, to get some alone time, and to pray. My brothers and sisters, we need a place and a habit of prayer. One of the things that we find in American Christianity is that when problems arrive, when issues happen, when mayhem occurs, the first response is in prayer. That when we talk with other believers and we show them our ministry and how flourishing our church is, we don't bring up prayer. And Christians all around the world that are being persecuted, that are in harm's way, their go-to response is prayer. And Christians in America, our first response is not prayer. Andy Minio, in uh, one of his songs, I believe it was Death of Me, said, If Jesus retreated to spend time with his father, then I know that I need it. 
That's why I applaud Pastor Alex for being a great leader of the church by getting away. If it was up to me, he would have had two more months off. I thought he was going to say amen there. (laughs) Why do we need to find our prayer room or our prayer closet? Why do we need these places of solace to get away? Because we're called to spend the majority of our time with other people. We're called to be in ministry and to love on people and to be in crowds and to get our hands and feet dirty. And our way of recharging spiritually is to go back to the Father and spend some time alone. Now, here's the problem. A lot of us want this alone time and always. We're not spending any time ministering to the crowds. We're not spending any time pouring ourselves open to the vast uh, masses. And what ends up happening when we don't go to the Father, to Jesus, and spend a long time in prayer, what ends up happening is we walk for him and not with him. We talk about him and never talk to him. And that relationship never gets strong. And it is because of that, there are people, like we see here, Judas, who spent three plus years with him, serving him, doing miracles with him, preaching with him, and didn't know him. Jesus isn't shocked by this. In fact, he does tell us, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, would make it to the kingdom of heaven. That there are going to be some people that say, Lord, look at everything I did. And Jesus says, but I never knew you. Jesus has a habit of coming to this particular garden, one of his favorite places, and praying. And here we find him doing the same. And in verse 3, Judas, the traitor, has gathered together, uh, the ESV says, having procured a band of soldiers, the, the Greek word here describes a a section of soldiers from a larger squad and and the number could range anywhere between 200 to 600 soldiers now why does it take 200 at least soldiers to arrest one man here's the reason why there's two legitimate reasons i want you to understand The first reason is Jesus was no weak person. Jesus has showed his authority and his power many times. Jesus has showed boldness. See, a lot of times we think of Jesus as this guy with blonde hair walking around and his flip-flops just skipping along with butterflies around him. But Jesus was seen as a threat, both intellectually and physically. Jesus had no problem walking into a temple full of corrupt people and flipping tables over and beating all of them out of it. And they didn't lay a hand on him. They ran. And yet the same all-powerful Jesus had the meekness to hang out with children and play with them on the playground. Jesus would be in intense arguments with the, the greatest of leaders, both Jewish and Gentile, and wasn't scared of them. 
and yet he had the humility to sit down with immigrants and sojourners and sinners, outcasts. Now, that's one of the reasons, but the, the main reason is because you got to understand Jesus had a very large following, a large support group. We, we often just think of the 12 disciples, and we think of Jesus in, in our mind when we think of him preaching and walking and teaching and doing miracles. We think of Jesus plus the 12. But there was oftentimes hundreds of people following Jesus. If you recall, there was a couple of times that thousands of people, 5,000 men, uh, excuse me, 5,000 men alone, not to count women and children, had spent all day with him. And he ended up feeding them because they hadn't eaten all day. That there was a time that Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples that weren't the 12. And they came back amazed at what the kingdom of God, uh, uh, the progression that it made because of the power of Christ. They're worried that Jesus' followers and his disciples would outnumber them. And so at the least 200, but because of the number of following, it could have possibly been 600. And they came with lanterns, torches, and weapons, according to verse 3. Their intent is well known. This isn't the first crucifixion. This isn't the first bogus trial that's happened. And this won't be the last one. Verse 4 is so important because it gives us some insight into Jesus' sovereignty and his omniscience. Jesus, verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him. Now, John emphasizes this on multiple occasions. It's, it's not the first time that John, in fact, I referenced chapter 13 earlier when it says, Jesus, knowing who he was, washed his disciples' feet. Knowing that he was God, knowing that he was all-powerful, got down to watch the stuff. And, and throughout this, John says, I want you to know who he is. And here, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, he steps forward. This is before Judas has, has kissed him because they don't know who Jesus is. The soldiers, they're just carrying out an arrest warrant. They're looking for this guy that they've heard of, and they have heard some rumors about him. And Jesus steps forward and says, who do you seek? Who are you looking for? Isn't that an interesting question? Jesus knowing all, asking questions. He asked the question knowing the answer. Remember blind Bartimaeus crying out to Jesus? And Jesus knows he's blind, and Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want? Well, it's not a two-piece and, wing, uh, and fries, Jesus. Jesus knows the answer. And he says, whom do you seek? It's interesting that there are multiple times Jesus asked this question in the book of John. And every single time, he was the answer. In John chapter 1, verse 38, the disciples, are the, they are yet to become disciples, but they're following him. And Jesus eventually turned around and said, what are you seeking? They were seeking the Messiah. He was the answer to that question. 
That's John chapter 1. And in the end of John, John chapter 20, after his resurrection, the woman is crying in the garden, and Jesus comes to her saying, who are you looking for? She, assuming that he was the gardener, said, my Lord, I'm looking for Jesus. He was the answer. My brothers and sisters, can I quickly ask you the question, who and what are you looking for? There's only one answer. America and the world has tried to give us many solutions. America and the world has tried to give us many answers to that question, and the same answer has always been the same correct answer, Jesus. Regardless of what or who you're looking for, the answer is Jesus. Now, you have tried and you have looked all over the place. And C.S. Lewis says we all have a God-sized void, a God-sized hole that only he can fill. And you have tried everything. You have tried getting married. You tried having a baby. You tried alcohol. You tried pornography. You tried money. You tried drugs. You tried being prosperous and being famous. And Jesus comes to you today asking, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, comes forth and initiates this question. Who are you looking for? Verse 5 and 6, they give him the answer. Jesus of Nazareth. And his response is, according to the English translation, I am he. He doesn't hide. He, he, he doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth about this tall, brown skin, very, very intellectual. Yeah, I think he went that way. He doesn't hide. He boldly says, I am he. Their response, their response is one of the greatest moments in all of scripture, and yet it's oftentimes overlooked. These soldiers, they don't know who he is. Jesus, the person they're looking for, has come to them and said, who are you looking for? Uh, we're looking for Jesus. I am he. And for whatever reason, they went backwards and fell down. Now, the commentators, they, 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 there's not really much agreement on why this is the case. Perhaps they were so scared because they heard of the rumors of him. They heard of that he was a sorcerer. They heard that he's been doing some crazy things, that this person is now before them and they're scared. Perhaps. Perhaps Jesus' words alone, you know, the same words that created the earth. In the beginning, God said, let there be and there was. The one that said to the storm cease and that storm stepped back and went down. Perhaps Jesus' words alone made them fall down. An entire army fell down at Jesus' simple response. Perhaps it wasn't as simple of a response as we thought it was. Because 
John intentionally contrasts Judas' position with the soldier's position. If you look at it, it says, um, in, I'm still in chapter 18, verse 5, Judas, who betrayed them, was standing. Judas knew who he was, and he is standing. And the men who don't know who he is has fallen down. I want to, as Pastor Alex has already read earlier, I want to juxtapose it, this, this contrast, this answer to John chapter 8. Now, here's, here's what you got to understand. Jesus' response, I am he here in the English, you should either see one of two things. You should see a small little number or letter next to the word he, or the word he should be italicized. It is because they have added the word he to make it flow better with the English language. The literal Greek translation here is, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Ego, emi, or emi. It's however you want to say it. Literally translated, ego, I am, which is where we get the word ego from in English. Emi, guess what? I am. Jesus' response to who they're looking for, Jesus of Nazareth, is I am, I am, and they fall down. Now, I can't, I can't say that they are familiar with the Jewish text. I can't say that. We know from Exodus 3.14 that Moses, after having a very long conversation with God about going to Pharaoh and telling him to let God's people go, he finished saying, and who should I say sent them? And the Hebrew word is eh, yeah. I am, I am. That the word I am is a to be word. In other words, perhaps God was saying, tell Pharaoh of all the thousands and millions of gods he knows, tell him this one exists. This one be. If, if I can help out those in Ludlow, let me, let me change the word in a little bit. When God says I am, he is saying this, I am was past. I am is present, and I am will be future. He said, I just simply am, and I always have been am. I exist always at all times, and there's never been a time I wasn't am. But Jesus and his disciples and the Jewish people here are under Roman authority. And so they are now reading scripture in the Greek translation. We call it the Septuagint. And the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14 of the word, eh, yeah, I am, is ego, emi, or emi, I am, I am. And Jesus' response here is those same Septuagint words from Exodus 3.14, I am, I am. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus have used these two words, I am, I am, next to each other in the Greek. And it's not, he's not the only person to use them together. But John is famous for what we call these seven metaphorical I am statements. In John chapter 6, he says, I am, I am the bread of life. Ego imi. He says in John 8 and 9, ego imi, I am, I am the light of the world. He says in John 10, ego e me, 
uh, I am, I am the gate or the door. He says in John 10 also, I am, I am the good shepherd, ego and me. He says in John 11, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says in John 14, I am, I am the way, the truth and the life. And lastly, in John 15, he says, I am, I am the true vine. Now, I would like to propose to you that as powerful as the phrase I am, I am is here, the emphasis should be on the metaphors. It should be on Jesus' description of himself here because a lot of people have described him lately. I think the priority should be what has Jesus said he is, who has Jesus said he is. It reminds me of Exodus uh, 34, 6, and 7, when God himself comes down and describes himself to Moses and the people. He says, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, that is, he will be or he is. It is from that root word or that original word, eh, yeah, I am. But Moses can't say I am, so he says he is. So Yahweh, God's covenant name, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a patient and gracious and merciful and loving and steadfast and faithful God, but by no means while clear the guilty. He describes himself. So as important as these seven metaphorical I am's are, the emphasis are on the metaphors. But there are three times in John's book, John's gospel, that I am is not used as a subject. I am the bread of life, subject, uh, predicate. I am the uh, I am the good shepherd. I am subject, predicate. There are three times that the I am is the predicate. And to be honest, it's just bad grammar. In John 6, the disciples are in the middle of a storm, and they see something on the water walking, and they say, Lord, is that you? Now, your English doesn't say this, but the literal response from Jesus is, Ego imi. I am, I am. <laughs> in the midst of this storm, he is here definitely saying, I'm God. In John 8, which was already read, he talks about how Abraham, excuse me, uh, yeah, Abraham longed for the day that he would see him, Jesus, the Messiah, and he did see him. And the people said, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old yet, and you're saying that you met Abraham? And then Jesus' response is, before Abraham was, I am, I am. And the people, watch their response. They picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because they hate bad grammar. No. They picked up stones to kill him because they knew exactly what he was saying. Now, let's get back to John 18. Regardless of the reason for these soldiers to bow down, it's the right response. You know, you you have some teachers, especially in math and chemistry, that if you use the wrong formula or you use the wrong method to get to the answer, but you still got the right answer, they mark it off. I'm I'm giving them credit here. Regardless of the reason, it was the right response. For the Bible does tell us that there's going to be a time, I know this is controversial to say, but there will be a time that every knee is going to bow. And they bowed here. Romans 2.4 says that God's kindness should lead you to repentance. But his, rep- his, his kindness isn't always the reason that people repent. See, it's the, it's the, 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 the method to get to that repentance was wrong, but it was the right repentance. 
There's a lot of people that went to RUF when I was in college. They went there for the wrong reasons, but they met the Lord. I don't care how you got there, you got there. Because God says, my word does not return back void. I didn't mean to preach like this today. Jesus says, I am, I am. And in verses 7, 8, and 9, we find the reason Jesus asked the question. Jesus says, while they're bowing down, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I told you that I am, I am, so let them go. Ah, we see the reason why he, he initiated this. It was to make sure that his disciples were safe. It was to make sure that he was the barrier between the threat and the people that he wanted to sacrifice himself for. Sacrificing himself to rescue others. No doubt. My mind reflects on those great heroes who have sacrificed health and life to protect others. I think about teachers and students who have used their own bodies as barricade during active shooters. I think about the first responders during 9-11 going up in the towers knowing they wouldn't be able to come back down. I think about Christians that sacrificed themselves for the eternal sake of those in hostile nations. And most recently, you may recall the six-year-old boy, Bridger Walker, who took an attack from a dog to protect his sister. And after 90-plus stitches, his response was, if someone had to die, I thought it should be me. Jesus asked the question because he wants them to stay focused on why they're there. Don't take them. Now, you need to understand, they're going to have their time. But don't take them. Now is not their time. You came for me. And what happens? Well, we're getting to the nearer end of this. And while it appears that they're still bowing down, Peter draws his sword and wildly swings, and all he gets out of 200 men bowing down is an ear. Peter's action was brave, willing to die for the Savior at this very moment. But it was foolish. You have 200 plus armed soldiers that are better soldiers than he is. After all, he's a fisherman. And by the way that he cast this sword, he should stick to casting reels and rods he's a better fisherman than a soldier they're bowing down and peter is raging war it reminds me of one of my favorite songs jesus friend of sinner listen to these words jesus friend of sinner we cut down people in your name but the sword was never ours to swing jesus friend of sinners the truth becomes so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. It goes on to say, always looking around, but never looking up. I'm so double-minded. A plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. And they finish it by saying, no one knows what we're for, only what we're against when we're judged or wounded. 
What if we put down our signs, cross over the lines, and love like you did? Peter has just gotten everyone killed. But Jesus intervenes again. We know from other accounts that Jesus heals. This is the high priest servant, Malchus. He heals him. He heals his ear back. No doubt de-escalating the whole situation. Peter's aim is off in both his intentions and his actions. And Jesus opposes his actions. Jesus tells him, what are you doing? Put the sword back up. Now listen, Jesus praises Peter a lot. But true love also condemns. We find Peter as a great representation of the Christian life. It's one that oscillates. It's a roller coaster ride. It goes up and down. Peter shows great courage at times. Here, he is ready to die with his Savior. And then moments later, he is scared of a servant girl who asks him, are you one of his disciples, and denies his Lord and friend. It is Peter, again, that that representation of this swinging back and forth life of Christianity or Christians. It is Peter who is given credit for the two greatest confessions one can make. In Acts 10, after a miracle, they begin to worship him, and he ripped his clothes open and said, I am just a man. But then in Matthew 16, Peter says, Thou art the Christ. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. And when he says this statement, he rightly answered, but still did not fully understand it. Jesus praises his answer and even says this, on this rock, I will build my church. He said, blessed are you, Peter. And not more than 10 verses later, Jesus calls him Satan. What happened? What happened in less than 10 verses from blessed are you, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. Get away from me, Satan. Well, Jesus had just prophesied later on to his disciples that I must go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter said, no. And here in verse 11, Jesus is getting ready to die. And once again, what is Peter's response? No. Because Jesus' response is this. Put your sword into a sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter doesn't want him to die. Peter doesn't want him to drink this cup. Because Peter's uh, idea of Jesus' mission, Peter's idea of Jesus' identity did not line up with Jesus' true identity. And that question that Jesus asked in Matthew 16 is still relevant today. Jesus was sitting with his friends, and he said to them, who do people say that I am? Well, we know the answer during that time, right? That some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say the prophet Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. We know that some thought he would be a political leader that would come and rescue his people from Rome's authority. 
And in Acts 1, 6, we find this. Jesus talks about them getting the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' uh, uh, response after, after they, Jesus said this, their response to him is, is at this time, is it then you're going to overthrow the Roman Empire? John the Baptist had the same question. John is locked up. He's the first cousin of Jesus. He's about to be executed, and he sends messengers and say, are you the Messiah or should we look for another one? Because your idea of being a Messiah isn't lining up with what I want it to be. I'm about to die here. I'm suffering here. And what's Jesus' response? It's not go and tell John how powerful I am and how many angels answer to me. His response isn't, tell John about my participation in creation and how I formed Adam and Eve. Jesus' response is, go and tell John this. The blind is seeing, the lame is walking, the lepers are being cleaned, the dead is being raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's what his messiahship and his identity was. And so the question, as I go to my clothes, that's been around for centuries, was once again asked to me as I was working this sermon. Jesus said to me, Lyle, who do people say that I am? And I had to answer with much dismay and disheartened. Some say you are a Baptist, and some say you're Presbyterian. Not only that, but my Lord, some say you're a Republican, And some say you're a Democrat. Some say you're American. And some even say you're dead. Jesus, with confidence in his eyes, looked at me and said, but who do you say that I am? You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. You're a good, good father, and you're perfect in all of your ways. You're Jehovah Jireh, my provider. You're Jehovah Nisi. Lord, you reign in victory. You're Jehovah Shalom, my prince of peace, and I worship you because of who you are. But not just that. You are Lord of lords and king of kings. You are mighty God, Lord of everything. You're Emmanuel. You're the great I am. You're the prince of peace. Who is the lamb? You're the living God. You're my saving grace. You will reign forever. You are ancient of days. You are Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. You're my Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, and friend. You are the Prince of Peace. My Lord, you simply are. You is. You always will be. And you was. Lord, you am. Regardless of who or what we think we are, God is and always will be. Whatever you need from him, whatever you need him to be, above all things, he's God. And God let them take him through six trials. God let them march him up Calvary Hill. God let them nail his hands and feet. God let them hang him up high. And God gave up his life so that we may live. God says, I am, I exist. And because he exists, our identity is in his existence. And because he exists, we exist. 
Because he lives, we live. God bless you.